Welcome to Thompson Hines Environmental Laws Podcast. That's L-A-W-S, which stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. And that is exactly what we'll be talking about. In the podcast episodes, we'll cover current topics in environmental, health, and safety laws in the United States from the perspective of Thompson Hine attorneys, the regulated community, regulators, and the occasional special guest. We know you're busy, so our goal in each episode is to provide practical and efficient insights to you on a timely EHS topic. My name is Ray Blattner. I'm a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group residing in the firm's Dayton, Ohio office. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Andy Colasar, who's a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group in Cincinnati, Ohio. Andy counsels a variety of large manufacturing companies throughout the United States on environmental compliance, enforcement, and litigation matters, and has assisted clients for many years on the legal requirements and strategic options when manufacturing plants are closed. This has taken on new significance during the ongoing pandemic, which has unfortunately led to a new round of plant closures. Andy will share with us today insights he has learned over the years on how companies can use best practices to close, investigate, remediate, and sell those properties. Andy, welcome to the podcast. I hope you and our listeners are staying well during these unprecedented and challenging times. Thanks, Ray. I look forward to our discussion, which I I hope our listeners will find useful. Obviously, there is some focus on plant closings because of the pandemic and the economic hardships it has created, but this is not a new topic. Unfortunately, the trend in the U.S. has been towards plant closures for many years as companies move facilities offshore, consolidate, or go out of business. So we've been dealing with plant closing issues for a long time, and we've learned a lot from the experience. Well, let's get started. Andy, what's the high-level message you want our listeners to understand? There was a time when many companies had a knee-jerk reaction when closing facilities where environmental conditions were unknown. They often decided to mothball the facilities to avoid digging up skeletons of the past. But there's a cost to the mothball alternative in terms of large carrying costs such as taxes, insurance, utilities, and security, plus a continuation of the long-term environmental risks. For example, if groundwater continues to migrate off-site. And of course, there's a loss of revenue from the non-sale of the property. I don't advocate a one-size-fits-all approach, but I do encourage companies to think strategically with the input of the company's EH&S manager, real estate manager, environmental consultant, and environmental lawyer to assess the options and make a wise choice. Are you suggesting that mothballing is never an appropriate approach? No. It should be considered with the range of other alternatives, particularly where the company feels it may not be the right time to expose the company to risk if an investigation is conducted 
that identifies reportable contamination that forces the company to conduct remediation. But even under these circumstances, I generally recommend some analysis, such as reviewing historical information with a confidential phase one type investigation to get a sense of what is known and where there are data gaps. This rather inexpensive exercise may be sufficient to quantify the potential cleanup costs so that a decision can be made to move forward, perhaps under a state voluntary action program. So what are the primary objectives that companies should consider when considering closing plants? Well, first, they need to comply with law and protect the health and safety of employees and neighbors. This is paramount. Second, if, if remediation is necessary at the facility, then the company wants to conduct it in a cost-effective manner. Third, the company should consider um, how it will reduce long-term liability risks. And, and finally, the company wants to maximize the sale price with, with consideration of the other objectives. So, so companies generally need to balance these objectives to make a, a good decision on how to move forward. Let's drill down on the first objective, complying with legal requirements. We have to first understand the legal requirements. What is mandatory, such as notices to government agencies, closing underground storage tanks or RICRA units, most companies view these as the minimum requirements. Some states, like New Jersey, your old stomping grounds, impose very comprehensive requirements for investigation and remediation when a plant closes. Connecticut also has its Transfer Act that imposes similar requirements when the operations or property is transferred. And Ohio has um, its cessation of regulated operations law, which mandates decommissioning, security, and other requirements. So these are some examples of legal requirements that, that may apply. Now, companies also need to consider appropriate security to protect against trespassers and the damage they, they can do to property and themselves. There are some real horror stories out there about children or vagrants breaking into closed facilities and causing environmental damages. So, so companies also need to determine the applicable standards for decommissioning, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that in this podcast, but often these are internal best management practices uh, rather than regulatory requirements. Uh, but there can be a number of mandatory requirements for underground storage tanks, um, RICRA units, wastewater treatment plants, and some air emission units. And then, Ray, there's, there's some less obvious considerations that, if missed, can lead to some very significant problems. Uh, for example, waste characterization becomes important as raw materials become waste as tanks are drained and clean or other materials are discarded. 
permit modifications may be needed for changes in wastewater discharges or air emissions as processes are shut down and, and equipment is, is decommissioned. There also can be reports that uh, may be due the following year after the plant is closed, such as Form R's, and, and these are often missed, so companies need to calendar these requirements. And, and don't forget to check lease requirements if applicable. Um, they may establish standards for decommissioning, investigation, and, and possibly remediation. If a company is exiting a lease, uh, it should consider how it can document how it left the property in good condition in compliance with the lease. After considering this plethora of legal requirements, what's next? What should companies consider about potential site contamination? Well, to the extent remediation is necessary, and, and we're kind of jumping ahead to that in this process, but to the extent it's necessary, and in some cases it may be mandatory, we want to do it in a cost-effective manner so costs do not get out of hand. Um, the company needs to balance cleanup costs with the objectives to reduce liability risks and maximize the sale price that I, I mentioned um, a couple minutes ago. Let's just think about it. So if, if you clean up to background or residential levels, this can be very expensive, but it may eliminate risk essentially completely. If the company uses engineering and institutional controls, which can be much less expensive, it leaves contamination in place and therefore the risk remains along with O&M requirements um, and, and, and other long-term long obligations. And when I say engineering controls, I'm talking about things like caps and institutional controls could be deed restrictions like non-residential use only. So it's important to strike a balance um, and, and, and it depends on the circumstances. If it's a little more expensive to provide a permanent remedy, then that should be given a lot of weight, but often engineering and institutional controls are used to substantially reduce the cost. We also balance the considerations of remediation objectives and costs and risk reduction with maximizing property value uh, at the time of sale. A, a property remediated to meet residential, residential standards, uh, for example, may have a higher sale price than a property that has relied on engineering or institutional controls. So we want to maximize value, but we may incur more risk depending on, on who buys it. Um, you know, as an example, um, the, the most valuable use of a property may be for single family homes, um, but, but that also creates the most risk to the seller. So proactive companies get their environmental managers, real estate and business managers, environmental consultants and lawyers together early in the process 
so they can consider these options and make good strategic decisions to achieve these objectives. Let's now go back to the strategic decision-making you mentioned earlier. What did you mean by that? In quick summary, it means giving your company an opportunity to be strategic by getting the right folks together that have the expertise and, and do that early in the process. Um, and that process includes identifying the mandatory requirements and doing them efficiently, gathering information and considering all the facts and circumstances, and making decisions rather than responding to problems or putting out fires. There are some other factors at the time of closing that should be considered when developing uh, a strategy. For example, companies closing old factories have to recognize that regulatory agencies may get interested when a plant closure is announced, especially if the local government is feeling uh, angry about the closure, which is often the case, or disgruntled employees make um, anonymous calls to EPA or OSHA. These considerations should be included when a company is assessing the strategic options uh, I mentioned uh, uh, earlier. So the company decision makers need to consider how it wants to allocate its capital and its people. In a tough economy, it might be a good time to meet minimum, re minimum requirements and then lay low. Lay low, sounds, sounds like we're back to the mothballing option. Well, some companies default to mothballing properties because their old manufacturing plants present too many risks. They don't want to incur costs that could be delayed indefinitely. So let's consider the following on a very basic level. Um, when we, when, you know, sort of the starting point is looking at potential cleanup costs versus the market value of the property. Now, market value often is easy to determine. Now, cleanup costs often are not, and, and there is a cost and risk associated with collecting information useful to quantify costs, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. As I mentioned earlier, carrying costs can be very significant, security, heating, taxes, maintenance, insurance. Uh, I have seen these costs in the range of hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. And liability does not go away. Um, contamination sits there, uh, if not addressed, and, and, and it may migrate. If there is a risk of exposure to adjacent homeowners or drinking water aquifers or even trespassers, it's better to find out and address it uh, rather than wait under some circumstances. Some other considerations when thinking about mothballing um, is that there may be other PRPs, potentially responsible parties, that can help pay the cleanup costs. CERCLA or, or Superfund provides rights to parties for cost recovery 
and contribution. Um, Ohio Voluntary Action Program has, as an example, has a generous cost recovery provision, including attorney's fees. Uh, the company may have rights against former owners under contract, and, and some of these claims could be lost um, from statutes of limitations by, by delay. And, and there may be old insurance policies that, that may cover remediation costs. So, so there are a lot of cases where mothballing is perfectly appropriate, particularly where the property has little or no market value. Again, you know, the company needs to factor in potential regulatory scrutiny when making a decision about mothballing. If the agency is interested, the company might be better off in a voluntary program rather doing it under an enforcement order. So companies, you know, also should assess whether there are grants, tax incentives available to defray costs. For example, Ohio offers tax abatements uh, for, for VAT properties. Uh, New York and other states offer brownfield tax credits. So that's another thing that should be considered in, uh, when making decisions. So I'm not telling you how the analysis will turn out. Sometimes it will suggest mothballing is the right approach. In other cases, it might suggest a more proactive approach. If a company has not decided to mothball, what is typically the next step? Well, this is when it gets interesting. Um, usually the biggest impediment to moving forward with a potential sale of the property is the lack of information about site conditions, in particular, the lack of soil or groundwater data. And it's very concerning to start poking holes in the ground. Um, but being able to quantify the cleanup costs is, is, is really huge. In, in very simple terms, if you compare cleanup costs to market value, market value you should know if you should move forward, at least on financial grounds alone. There are other considerations, of course. There are some ways to quantify cleanup costs. In fact, we do it all the time, not only for plant closures and sales, but also due diligence before acquiring companies or real estate. And we do it by retaining highly qualified, highly experienced environmental consultants who have various methods to quantify cleanup costs, even in some cases where there is very little information. Now, often this is more than, uh, of an art than a science. Some of the methods um, include the use of simple ballpark estimates, considering best case, probable case, and reasonable worst case outcomes based on the consultant's experience at other sites and using whatever information is available, including, for example, historical information from a phase one report and other information to quantify costs for each area of concern that may be identified. For example, the way this, this may work in practice is that um, there, there may be information that a uh, former heating oil 
underground storage tank was removed 20 years ago, and there's no records of whether or not there were releases. A consultant, based on experience, may be able to, to, to make a ballpark estimate that you know that the cleanup cost could be in the range of fifty to hundred thousand dollars as a reasonable worst case, and and they can do similar things for, uh, as an example, former drum storage areas with or without chlorinated solvents, a, a former PCB transformer leak, and and other such things. Um, these are types of releases or potential releases that might be amenable, amenable to quantification, considering the site setting, depth to groundwater, proximity to receptors, and, and other factors. And there are more sophisticated methods, for example, using Monte Carlo simulation, where a consultant looks at individual components of a project and assigns a range of costs and probabilities, and then runs hundreds or thousands of simulations to develop probable costs. In some cases, it is very difficult to develop reliable cost estimates. Um, in some cases, based on the circumstances, it is necessary and appropriate to obtain phase two data that generally will lead to more precise cost estimates. But there are potential pitfalls associated with gathering data, aren't there? Absolutely. Companies need to be aware that gathering this type of information <clears throat> can have ramifications, and some of it can be very bad. In some states, you may have to report the data, for example, if you find contamination, and the company may end up in a mandatory cleanup program. Once you have this data uh, showing that there's contamination, the company may be required to disclose it to prospective buyers, banks, and insurance companies uh, if they're interested in a, an insurance policy. It may also have implications on financial reports and reserves. It's also not a good fact in a toxic torque suit if the company has knowledge of an exposure and, and does nothing about it. It's, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. So the company needs to understand this very clearly uh, before it decides to poke holes in the ground. This is why we often recommend a cautious, phased approach, starting with a review of, of historical information and identifying data gaps. At that point, do you have enough information for reliable estimates um, so that the company can make decisions? Sometimes we do. Often we do not at complicated sites. So we have to consider the pros and cons of phase two sampling and decide whether to take the plunge or not, balancing all of these uh, considerations. Much to uh, ponder there. I know many states have voluntary cleanup programs that our clients and many other companies have used successfully. I assume that is considered in the analysis? Absolutely. 
these programs have been around for quite a while now, and, and they offer multiple benefits uh, that can be gained, including site-specific cleanup standards, approvals from the government for no further action, and liability protection, which are very valuable to sellers, buyers, and lenders. Again, when thinking about voluntary programs, you have to consider the pros and cons. Um, some of these programs, many, will add uh, costs um, and, you know, because there's more submissions and, and red tape. Uh, there may be delays, and, and some have a lot of agency oversight. Um, and, and in some cases, the, 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 the voluntary program would require the company to assess the entire site and look for every problem uh, rather than uh, focusing more narrowly on uh, specific areas. Let's now talk about selling these old manufacturing properties. The sale of a brownfield is much more complicated than other real estate transactions. Um, you and I have been through many of these, and, and we've seen the problems that can arise post-closing. I advise clients to consider these potential problems and attempt to address them up front to avoid surprises and disputes and litigation in the future. The first consideration is that selling the property to an imprudent buyer who does not do appropriate due diligence is not always a safe approach. It may stop the carrying costs that we discussed and, and put some money in seller's pocket, but does not necessarily eliminate or mitigate long-term risk and potentially could exacerbate those risks. For example, the buyer converts the property to residential use and residents become exposed to harm, harmful vapors or the buyer discovers contamination during development. What happens next? Uh, the seller may get dragged back in by the buyer or the government, and the company has lost control of the cleanup. There's a need for careful drafting of purchase agreements to address environmental issues. Here's an example. Seller says it will indemnify for any losses or liabilities relating to pre-closing contamination. It's a pretty common provision that we see in purchase agreements. But what does that really mean when a problem arises after the closing? Does it mean that the buyer is protected only if the government orders a cleanup? What if the buyer finds contamination, but there's no legal requirement to report or clean it up? What would be the cleanup standard? Would it be an industrial commercial standard? or residential? And what access rights will the seller have to conduct the cleanup? And, and finally, can the seller use engineering controls like caps and inst institutional controls like non-residential use restrictions or no groundwater use, which can make a huge difference in cleanup costs? In brief, I want the seller and the buyer when we represent buyers to consider these recurrent issues up front. If cleanup is possible or likely, 
then deal with these issues in the contract. The seller might ask for an environmental easement from the buyer to provide access. Um, the seller may impose a use restriction as part of the deed of transfer. And some companies insist on non-residential use restrictions and, and no groundwater use as prudent risk management measures. We have used, on rare occasions, no dig provisions, so the buyer is not allowed to look for problems voluntarily, and, and they lose their indemnity if they violate. And we, we also represent buyers, as you know, and um, you know they need a higher level of due diligence for brownfields. The issues may go beyond the usual ASTM standards, and, and might include, for example, lead paint, mold, or water intrusion, asbestos, um, and emerging contaminants like PFAS. We, as, as a buyer, um, we may want cleanup estimates depending on the circumstances and whether the seller will remain on the hook and, and whether the seller has financial resources to conduct the remediation. How do environmental health and safety managers and general counsel ensure that their companies use these best practices? Ray, I'm a big advocate for corporate management systems for all aspects of EH&S, including plant closures, remediation, and sale. The corporate EH&S managers and in-house lawyers should be able to determine best practices for the company and then impose those requirements on plant managers, business units, the real estate department, and others who are involved through a management system endorsed by the CEO of the company. I understand that this is easier said than done at many companies, particularly those that are highly decentralized. But this is the way to do it if you want greater accountability, control, and better risk management. I, I feel that plant closure and remediation is a perfect candidate for corporate-wide systems because of the enormous potential liabilities and costs associated with um, this aspect. The, the objective is to give the, the companies managers with expertise in their respective areas a chance to gather and provide information so that risks and liabilities and costs and benefits are analyzed and, and that this is done as early in the process as possible. We, we sometimes see the corporate EH&S manager first get involved after the closed plant is leased or under contract for sale and that's often too late. Or they get involved after the sale in dealing with vague contract language, cleanup after the sale, and access issues. So an effective program um, makes clear um, when it applies, for example, whenever a spill occurs at a company-owned facility, um, there, a discovery of historic releases, government scrutiny, or, of course, plant closures. 
And these programs are, should provide clear, established guidelines so the company does not need to reinvent the wheel at each and every facility uh, that closes. And the program is designed to get the EHS managers thinking and talking like business people, where they focus on key parameters of cost, schedule, performance standards, objectives, and minimizing risk. So, Ray, just briefly, some, some key aspects of an effective corporate remediation program include designating a corporate remediation manager. He or she has a critical role to implement the corporate procedures, manage the outside consultants, and interface with lawyers, asking the right questions and controlling the budget, and generally running the show. I can't overemphasize the importance of the remediation manager for the overall success of the program. The, the program would also call for site-specific plans. We may call this the remedial investigation feasibility stage where options are identified, analyzed, and plans are selected based on relevant factors such as cost and reliability, among other things. Also, considering financial constraints and, and timing issues that we, we talked about earlier. Next, um, there's a need to refine the site-specific action plan. Uh, it has to be reviewed periodically. As you know, some of these projects take decades to complete, so you have to periodically consider whether business objectives have changed. For example, perhaps the company wants to clean up its balance sheet for a planned transaction or financing. There may be new site information, new technology, or new regulatory requirements. So the program establishes how costs will be managed and, and tracked. Um, initially, baseline budgets are set for the expected endpoint. Um, clear, quantifiable milestones should be set to measure progress, and then periodically you measure um, the actual costs and schedule against the projections. Next, there should be updates where um, the, the consultant and the, the, the project manager identify critical assumptions and plans so that changes to the assumptions can be identified, which will affect cost and timing. This is important for accountability of the consultants and remediation contractors. Next, there's a need for periodic project review, which includes status, issues, and budgets, challenging assumptions, and assess continually the, the strategies. The, the program also could include peer audits which can be used on complex projects to get new perspectives, new ideas, in some ways um, to hold the consultant and project managers accountable. Well, we have covered a lot of ground today, including the various aspects of plant closings, decommissionings, and preparing properties for sale, and the value, clearly the value of strategic decision-making early and throughout the process. 
and those elements that lead to optimal project-by-project -project outcomes, uh, which can be institutionalized in a corporate program that ensures that these principles are applied throughout the company. Good advice. I think uh, that gives our listeners a lot to chew on as they contemplate changes in their own organizations to ensure ongoing environmental compliance. The uh, global pandemic will certainly continue to create new challenges and opportunities for fresh ideas like the ones you've raised. Andy, I want to thank you for spending time with me today and discussing these important issues with our listeners. Thank you, Ray. It's, it's my pleasure. If there are any questions regarding the information we discussed today, uh, my contact information and your contact information is available on Thompson Hines' website at www.thompsonhine.com. Well, this concludes this episode of Thompson Hines Laws podcast. We look forward to continuing to provide our listeners with current and practical insight into environmental health and safety laws and developments in the future. The Laws podcast episodes are available at iTunes, Spotify, Google, and SoundCloud. We'll have additional new episodes later in August, so be on the lookout. If you have a request regarding a particular topic you'd like to hear addressed in a future episode, please feel free to send an email with your request to our partner Joel Eagle at joel.eagle at thompsonhine.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Group, please visit thompsonhine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers in eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full service business law firm recognized for innovation and client service. Our smart path approach provides clients with services that are predictable, efficient, and which align with their short and long-term strategic goals. This podcast is for informational purposes only, provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thanks for listening today. Be well, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.